Now hear this. Now hear this. Week four of Quanta Camp begins at 0500. We start with a 25 mile hike with 50 pound packs. Then things get worse. We're going to learn to endure torture by being forced to watch most conference presentations. Following breakfast, we'll muster under the flag to hear Sergeant Q lead us in a discussion of what makes a good pedagogical teacher's corner type paper, introducing a quantitative method to your field. Field, field, Hello, hello, hello. Echo, 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 echo. Get on with it, Hancock. Carry on. On, 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 on. So, Greg, I have to say I'm a little better resourced today because the last episode we did, it was after nine o'clock in the evening. Yes, you regaled us with the tales of your butt, I believe. It had fully and officially Uh gone to sleep. As had all the listeners. (laughs) (laughs) But, dude, you got to get back to the East Coast as I'm not handling the time difference well. Although, what is still aggravating me is Mm -hmm. when we're on the east coast you text me still an hour or two before i get up Mm -hmm. when you're on the west coast (laughs) you text me an hour or so before i get up yeah it's true i am just such an early bird when i go to the west coast like i am right now and when i have these plush digs as i do right now coming to you live from my (laughs) nephew's bedroom. Right. (laughs) I still try to keep mostly on East Coast time. And I really have no social graces. I'm happy to text you at any time of day, as you know. Oh, we've established that early on and (laughs) repeatedly. Uh Yes. It always makes me feel a little bad when I literally get work texts from you that you sent two hours before (laughs) my alarm went off. And that continues when Uh you're on the West Coast. From the West Coast. I think even when I've been in Hawaii, it's possible. (laughs) Hopefully my butt will hang in there for the entirety of the episode. It's not in the morning, but we have a nice afternoon slot. I like Mm. that. Although it's totally bizarre is I'm in North Carolina and normally mid-June it's in the 90s and 95% humidity. It is 60 degrees out and pouring rain. I might be able to beat that. I am at the foot of the Cascade Mountains in the state of Washington. It is pouring sheet rain and we're at 53. Hey, not that you're being competitive or anything. Not at all, but I win. (laughs) You do. Mm-hmm. Although you did tell me that you were going to sleep out on the back deck and your sister-in-law said that'd be a great idea, but know <laughs> that black bears come up and press their faces against the glass. I know, I'm still tempted to do it, but there's that possibility. They said they've only seen black bears in their backyard like 50 times, though. So, <laughs> <laughs> Don't they just eat like blueberries and stuff? Yeah. I mean, you should be safe. Sure. So this is week four of Quanta mm-hmm. Camp. But let's get in the Wayback Machine and think about mm-hmm. where we are at this point. After the sleeper cell called to arms, Henry V, mm-hmm. never yes. get too much Henry V. From this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. Yeah! Week one was how do you develop a quantitative research idea? 
Week two is how do you identify a potential outlet to publish your work in your own substantive area. Week three Mm -hmm. was how can we use existing data in a joint way? One is to support some kind of quantitative research question. We talked a Mm -hmm. lot of ways of doing that, but Mm -hmm. one is to motivate it. So if you get a complicated, interesting data file, does that goose you to think about a new way of approaching that? Mm-hmm. So that's week three. Yeah. And so week four, we were not entirely clear on what we were going to talk about, but I sent you notes earlier today to discuss the episode that you have not opened yet. <laughs> <laughs> did you? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm sure you did. Let me just quickly double check. Uh, okay. Looks like Pottery Barn's having a sale. <laughs> Yeah, no, you've got something in my inbox, but I I didn't look at it. So you're just going to have to surprise me. The broad stroke for today is we were going to talk about what if a hypothetical person were to say, I've learned this new method. I think it's really cool. Mm -hmm. I've used it profitably in my work. I think I might be able to share it with others. Mm-hmm. As my quantitude assignment, I'm going to try to write a pedagogically oriented paper to try to disseminate this method within my area. Does that seem like a reasonable topic? Is that what we agreed on? No, I actually <laughs> asked what is the episode going to be on, and it's in the uh... unopened email. It's not important to assign blame here, but it's clearly your fault. That's okay. I can wing this. I can totally wing this. All right, so wait, what was it? Okay, okay no, it's like... <laughs> you're going to wing the <laughs> I topic got of the show? I was kind of hoping that we could just pick at least something that we're both talking about the same thing. Yeah, it's fine. We can clean it up in post-processing. <laughs> <laughs> Put a couple of quotes in from Stripes and Ghostbusters yeah. and nobody yep. will notice. We're good. So am I to understand that you men completed your training on your own? That's the fact, Jack! That's the fact, Jack! There's something very important I forgot to tell you. What? Don't cross the streams. Why? It would be bad. I'm fuzzy on the whole good-bad thing. Yeah, (laughs) we'll be fine. Um, Yeah, I think that's a great topic. You know, sometimes we talk about it as a teacher's corner piece, but sometimes it could even be a book chapter. Sometimes it can be part of a special issue of a journal if you're getting very ambitious, a special issue that even could be about introducing new methods, new ways of inquiry within a particular field. So I'm all in. I can totally fake this. I'm ready. (laughs) So how do you want to do it? I'm I'm still not going to look at your message. So you and I have written pedagogical papers, we've read pedagogical papers, we've reviewed them through different Mm -hmm. kinds of mechanisms, we've assigned them in our class, and we have some loose sense of characteristics that we like and characteristics that we find less helpful. And Mm -hmm. maybe we could just chat a little bit about what it is we like, what it is we think is better, if it's best avoided, and people can sort through them and pick out what they like and ignore what they don't when they're thinking about their own paper. I like that. So it's going to be a ping pong format, which is seems to be a strength of ours. Let me say this up front to folks and see if it resonates. You and I have been doing methodology for a very long time. And I will tell you, though, that this is still one of my favorite kinds of papers. Sure, I get excited when I read a paper that proposes some new method and I go, oh, look, it can answer new questions. But I'll tell you what, I love, I love reading a good didactic piece. 
contrary to what some newer scholars might think, we don't really know everything. We know a lot of stuff, and we have ideas about how things work that we're not intimately familiar with just because things tend to work in similar ways. But I love Teacher's Corner Pieces because I learn from them too. It doesn't matter how old you are. And in fact, Teacher's Corner Pieces help me to stay on top of things that I don't have time to drill down to. So I am just as excited about these pieces as maybe someone who is reading those methods for the first time and doesn't have this particular background. So this is one of my favorite things to think about. Me as well. As a consumer, I love them, but I also think they're a blast to write yeah. because they give you an opportunity to write a bit more colloquially, talking to the reader one-on-one. -on -one. I think a pedagogical paper is much more like a conversation and so I find the very writing of those papers to be more enjoyable. Yeah, and I think that will probably be fleshed out a little bit more in conversation as we ping pong back and forth. I will also add this one other preliminary thought that just came into my head because I have no preparation whatsoever, <laughs> as I made clear. That is that I have written these papers at various points in my career. Said differently, I have written these papers with different levels of expertise in the thing I'm writing about. So early on, you know, when I would learn a new method, first thing I want to do is write about it, is teach it to somebody, explain it to somebody. So I have written these kinds of pieces as a novice, and I have written these kinds of pieces as someone who knows a certain method through and through and has to figure out how to communicate it. And it is equally exciting to me from both perspectives. When I wrote them as a complete newbie, I was doing it so that I could take ownership of the material and share the material and learn it. So I'm excited as a new person who has to write these things. And I'm also excited as someone who has a lot of expertise in writing them. So I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about these from all of the perspectives that we have on them. Okay, so since you spent the last three or four days preparing for this, <laughs> uh -huh. as you slug your third bottle of Snapple since we've been on this Zoom call. <laughs> but I have an empty one here. So we can keep I recording. I know that there's a cyclical nature recording. to your Snapple oh, yeah. intake. Yep. Do you want to start us out? I'm going to start us off with a question, though. And I will ask... Just like a Yoda kind of thing? <laughs> Curious <I'm> you are. <laughs> hey, that was pretty good. And so here's the thing about Teacher's Corner Pieces, and you alluded to it a little bit at the beginning about how you view them as conversational. I think of these pieces as really being about good teaching. And so if I think about what are the characteristics that I want to see in a paper like this, I always ask myself, what does it mean to be a good teacher? What is good teaching? This to me is going to be good teaching in the form of, of writing rather than the form of live delivery or Zoom <laughs> or whatever, whatever form teaching is taking nowadays, you kids. So my question to you is, do you see this as really an exercise in good teaching? And do you see a lot of similarities there? Yes. And I equate good teaching with clear communication. And mm -hmm. I think that's one of the hallmarks of an effective pedagogical paper. It's that clarity of thought, giving the reader mile markers to follow the trail. I think that a really effective pedagogical paper is a way of communicating what's inside your head that maybe mm -hmm. is newly learned, or maybe you're drawing on 20 years of experience and mm -hmm. simply sharing that in a clear, concise, focused way. That to me means that as we go back and forth, a lot of the things that we're going to say we like to see 
in these pieces are the same things we would say if the topic had been, what do you like to see in good instruction or someone who is a good teacher? If I pull one just out of the top of my head, there's not really an order um, What with all the work I did ahead of time. But I will say, first of all, it's important to know who your audience is when you're going to craft one of these papers. So even if I'm going to write a didactic piece on a given topic, that piece would probably look different in one journal versus another journal. It would look different as a book chapter. It might look different as part of a special issue. And part of that really is just about knowing your audience, knowing your audience in terms of the kinds of content that they are familiar with, knowing your audience in terms of their technical expertise. And you might disagree with this one, but generally speaking, I find the better teacher's corner type pieces to be ones that don't bludgeon the reader over the head with a ton of formulas. Here's what I mean by that. There can be teacher's corner pieces in very sophisticated methodological journals. They appear in those types of places too. But when they appear in applied journals, the goal really is to try to draw people into this method to help them to understand it. And sometimes for me, starting at the bottom of the iceberg isn't necessarily the best entry point. So I think it's important to know the technical level of your audience. What are the things that are going to draw them in? What's the content that you're going to have to weave through it so you can really engage them? Know your audience, I think, is the first thing I'm going to stick with. Not only do I agree, but my first point will be a subway jumper on Mm -hmm. that, which is do everything humanly possible to embed the paper and the discussion and the motivation and the example in reality Mm -hmm. with respect to the theories that might be under study, the hypotheses that might be generated. A big one, the characteristics of the data, different kinds of decision points that you would make, the kinds of inferences that you would like to extract I think one of the hallmarks of a more limited kind of pedagogical paper is one that's oversimplified, Mm -hmm. that it's too clean, it's too easy. I don't know why I have a pet peeve on this, but I don't like the term a toy example. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's just a spin. I would rather see it as a proof of concept. And you commonly get that as, well, I applied it to a toy example. And Mm -hmm. my only thought is, what's the point? I mean, Mm -hmm. why are you doing that? Why don't you do it something more realistic? The kind of data that you get and the kind of process that you lead the reader through is make it as absolutely realistic as possible. Because I really do believe you're not doing the reader a favor by oversimplifying. And I think an oversimplified pedagogical paper can actually do more harm. And the reason is, is say I read something on method X and I get excited about it and I try to do it on my own data, but that it was simplified and the data that was found was rarefied and clean and bulletproof. And when I try to do it myself, it's a freaking Mm -hmm. train wreck. And then I'm worse off than I was not having tried it. So that's my subway jumper, is embrace reality. I would like to try to iron this out between us in the following way. You don't want it to be over-sterilized. But what I had also said, and I know that's what makes this a subway jumper, is that you don't necessarily have to go all the way down to all the underpinnings of everything. So for me, I think... There's this sweet spot that you have to find that is going to be a slightly different sweet spot depending on each of the different possible outlets that you might choose. If I'm going to an applied psychological journal, let's just say, 
and someone has pages of derivation, if you're trying to draw people in, that will really narrow the scope of who you draw in. On the other hand, if you treat the method as though it's so simplified and really not wedded to that particular content area, then you're, as you said, you're not really doing anybody any favors. So I like to find that blend of content area and technical, but not overly technical. I would say that we're actually closer than not because I wasn't referring mm -hmm. at all to technical. I yeah. think a lot of the time in these, you take the method as given. Mm -hmm. You can say this is developed here or three or four citations if you want to see the development of it, simulation work to validate it, other kinds of applications. What I was referring more to was the application aspect. Mm -hmm. So for example, I just recently finished teaching some multi-level modeling and I have a whole section on disaggregating between group and within group effects. Mm -hmm. And I use one single continuous level one predictor and then work through step by step of how do you compute the group means? How do you group mean center? How do you mm -hmm. enter the level one centered in the level two predictors? And we go through all in excruciating detail. And mm -hmm. then my throwaway point at the end is you'll never have a model this simple and mm -hmm. you have to scale it up in any realistic application. I think that's fine in a lecture. I think it's less useful in one of these pedagogical substantive papers because you're not going to have a multi-level model with a single predictor. And so to mm -hmm. spend 10 pages walking the reader through that is less mm -hmm. helpful. Something you and I have said many times over our many years together here on Quantitude, we have said it depends is sort of the take-home message of so many things. It depends. And in a lot of the methods that we try to convey in a first pass, when you're trying to acquaint people with it, there's still a lot of little it depends things. And the challenge I find myself having as a more seasoned author of these kinds of things is knowing what to let go. And so finding that balance of technical and, and other content is something I think to be thought about no matter where you're coming from to this type of paper. So really what you're saying is it all goes back to Marlo Thomas. And you and me are free to be. Oh, free to be you and me. Let the paper be what it wants to be. Uh -huh. <laughs> All right, so I subway jumped on you, so... Yeah, okay. You go back. That was my yeah, point. I, my point was mainly correcting your point. No, so. no, no. I know. I, we've met. Uh... <laughs> I would say when you're introducing a new method to an audience, an audience that's not typically familiar with that, it's really important to try to anchor that in things that that audience is already familiar with. Imagine someone wanted to introduce measured variable path analysis, and you can introduce that all by itself without connecting it to anything, but I think you're going to pull more people in if you take an angle, you know, a pretty obvious angle has to do with multiple regression. And thinking about multiple regression as a system that can have multiple predictors and a single outcome, but then opening it up into, well, what if you had multiple outcomes? And what if you had them situated in some mediating kind of process? And I think to me, this comes back to being what I think is a good teacher, Start with what people know and then use that as a point to expand and help people understand how the questions that you can answer expand relative to where that started. I'm going to subway jump on that. <laughs> you didn't really send me anything, I, did you? You know, I'm kind of glad you didn't open it. Uh -huh. <laughs> One year, my brother forgot my birthday and we were talking later and he said, I was going to send you a card, but I didn't. <laughs> 
And that was all he said. And it was perfect, Uh right? Is he didn't make an excuse. He didn't get malaria. He didn't get abducted (laughs) by aliens. He really (laughs) thought about sending Uh me a card, Uh but he didn't. And that's what matters, isn't it? I was going to send you an outline for the show, but (laughs) I didn't. So my related point is something my own students get sick of hearing me talk about, which is, here's an idea. Have a point. Remember planes, mm-hmm. trains, and automobiles? Very Next much. time you tell a story, <laughs> remember, have a point. It makes it much more enjoyable for the listener. Uh-huh. And by the way, you know, when you're, when you're telling these little stories, here's a good idea. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. And what I mean is, <laughs> what is your purpose? Never lose sight of why you're writing the paper. What is Mm -hmm. your point? And when I mean that more broadly is, why is your paper needed? How does it move you beyond what's currently known, what Mm -hmm. business as usual is, importantly, what other resources exist, and in your head, but also to the reader, articulate why this paper is needed at this time. As part of that is tying that to these other methods, but also using those other methods as an example of how the new methodology that you're describing gives you something that we didn't have before. Mm -hmm. Just going off of your example, you have a multiple Mm -hmm. regression model, and they're really well-developed ways to test mediation using multiple regression. But you have to Mm -hmm. build this kind of Frankenstein's monster And there are strong motivations for using a path analysis model where we can generalize that. So start with what people know and not Mm -hmm. only hook them at the circus tent, right? You've got the barker (laughs) out there (laughs) trying to get you to come into the tent. Not only does that hook them, but then you can very clearly say there are three distinct advantages that a measured variable path analysis provides over a multiple regression model in these kinds of settings. Could I make one other addition on the comparison? Do you mean, can you make one unique point? No, I'm going to subway jump on my own subway jump. Okay, okay, go ahead. It's just a tie back to what I prattled on about last week. Could you narrow it down? (laughs) You made me lose my point. Now my... (laughs) Hancock... Do a comparison with existing methods. Don't make it a horse race. Don't make it a cage match. My personal approach to reading these papers is it's not like old yeller and somebody needs to take regression out behind the shack and shoot Mm -hmm. it. I'm sorry if you haven't read old yeller yet, but they shoot old yeller at the end. What? No, mama. There's no hope for him now, Travis. You know we've got to do it. He was my dog. You didn't know that? (laughs) Old Yeller and Where the Red Fern Grows are two of the saddest books ever written in human history. But yes, they kill them both in both books. Okay. And don't read Flowers for Algernon. That's Uh, a bad one, too. You're saving me a lot of time this summer, so thank you. (laughs) For the books you didn't read in fifth grade? (laughs) That's right. Just when you frame it is make ties to the founding fathers and bring us forward, but keep it balanced in what are the different situations 
under the different kinds of theories and hypotheses that each has certain advantages or disadvantages. Oftentimes when I have a conversation with someone who has really gotten into a particular method, one theme of the conversation is how this sort of supplants so many other things. And they're very zealous about it and excited about it. And you can do all these things with it. And it's like they want to take their tool belt and pull off all these other things and just throw them away and put this new thing on there. And I understand that there are methods that subsume other methods. I surely do. But there are reasons that we have some of those other methods. And sometimes it's because those methods are easier to communicate with other people. Sometimes it's because they're more on point to what our research question is. Sometimes it's because it actually makes somewhat different assumptions that are more tenable than the super fancy method that we think ought to replace it. So I, I completely agree with you that we sometimes get so caught up that we forget that there really is a place for the methods that we have. Okay, your turn. Oh, crap, really? I want to see how I'm going to claim your third point. So wait, my subway jumper on yours doesn't count as mine, but your subway no, jumper is on mine No, you just mostly count. restated what I said. <laughs> I have learned from you. <laughs> okay. okay. I'm hung up on the children's books now that you just, that you just spoiled. Did you ever watch Kids in the Hall, the guys from Canada? Yes. I just loved Kids in the Hall, and they were just brilliant, and it was hilarious. But they had one bit where one of the guys was Satan, and uh -huh. all he did is to be evil was give away the endings of movies and books. Have you seen the movie Presumed Innocent? Yes, I have, Master. And his wife killed her. <laughs> evil! Evil! Impolite and evil! <laughs> All right, I notice you still haven't gotten to your third point. It's way to fill airtime, but... Oh, fine. Oh, fine. I like to see examples worked from start to finish. It's nice that you tell me all the cool things that this can do and that you can explain what kinds of questions are addressed and that you can do it in the language of this particular field. I like a paper that does one, that takes me through it. And the reason is that if I am a reader and a new learner, some teacher's corner papers might just give me an idea of what this is about. But I'll tell you what, if you can put it in the hands of those readers by giving them a template for conducting it, even if it's just sort of a, a get-to-know-me kind of thing, not with a toy data set, but in the context of the domain, then I love that. And that might mean some sample code in an appendix. That might mean going through and setting up what the research question is. How, how do I set things up? I really want to know what it looks like to go through this thing. Because if this is my first introduction to this, I would like to take this paper with me where I go next. So have an example that has worked pretty thoroughly all the way through the interpretation at the end. And that includes what you can say based on the results and what you shouldn't say based on the results. That, to me, really ups the value of this kind of paper. That reminds me of a related <laughs> point, uh <-huh. laughs> which is I also really like it where a paper lays out everything in the way that we're talking about. But there are page limitations and there are space limitations. And there's only so much that you can present in the manuscript itself. Make an effort to put some online support materials. Mm -hmm. Double down on the endeavor. You don't just hack up a 22-page next you do, then you do, next you do. And you just alternate between next and then and next and then is 
mm-hmm. be able to point someone where they can download a data file, they can run it themselves, you can give little blurbs about interpreting particular parameters. So I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. I won't subway jump, but I will channel the grumpy old man. Okay. So could I grouse about something that I don't like? Please. And I realize it's not universal, and I realize this is a personal issue. Mm-hmm. I am less engaged in papers that are functionally an annotated example for a specific computer program. Yeah. So if there's program X and it is doing A, B, and C using X's in the title, it just doesn't appeal to me. I don't feel like that's the place. I would ideally like to see a paper such as this be motivated by the method Mm-hmm. and the questions and the inference, and mm-hmm. then backstop it with here is some sample code in three different programs. Mm-hmm. Don't put software in the body of the paper. Mm-hmm. And even if there's only one magical software out there that does one magical thing, don't make it part of the science. Software is a hammer, and mm-hmm. it just allows us to pound in the nails that we want. And any software package is nothing more than a matrix parser and optimizer. That's all it is. Take that out of the science part of the paper and give those tools to the reader, but not in the body and flow of the paper. At the risk of being another grumpy old man, I, I agree. The papers that you read that have each line of code in there and then they deconstruct it and another line and they deconstruct it, I don't need to read a software manual. I want to learn about the method. And those kinds of papers really just become a software manual. So I agree. I like an architecture to the paper that you could almost be swapping out the software package in the background. And then there might be online materials that have three different, I think you said three different software packages where you could get any of those things from. I don't generally care. And you're right that it's extremely limiting where you say, we're introducing this with the software pack. I don't, I don't want to teach you a software package. I want to teach you about a new method. In fact, I sort of think about the best type of teacher's corner paper as one where that online material could be updated and the paper still stands. I don't want that paper to be totally time-stamped. And oftentimes when you anchor it to a particular software package at a particular version explicitly within the body of the paper, I think you're making the long-term utility of that greatly limited. And I think a great example of that is Boland's book on SEM, which was published in 1989. Mm -hmm. And I remember chatting with him once, and he said that he intentionally did not make software part of the body of the book. He's got a couple of appendices and some sample Mm -hmm. code. But that book is, what, 31 years old? And it is still the gold standard in the foundations of structural equation modeling. And I think that just highlights your point. That book is timeless because Mm -hmm. it's based on the ideas Now, to be clear, there's a huge use for these kind of how do you do factor analysis using blank. Pick your favorite Mm -hmm. software package. There are published books in every major Mm -hmm. one is structural equation modeling using Stata. Those are incredibly important and they're incredibly valuable. I think what we're talking about here 
is, you know what? I'm going to get out of line and I'm going to make another point. What? Sit in your bunk bed and, it, and just it, deal <laughs> with it. We're talking about these pedagogical-like papers as a scientific contribution. I feel like one of the things I would encourage everyone who's thinking about doing something like this in your own work and in your own field is even though it's, and I'm going to use air quotes that you can't see, a pedagogical paper, treat this as a unique contribution to the scientific Mm -hmm. literature. You are presenting something that doesn't exist. That goes back to my main point of here's an idea, have a point. Why are you writing this? And how is this moving us beyond what we already currently know? You are offering a unique contribution to the field, and you should treat it with that degree of respect. There's a huge need for these other kinds of outlets to give, well, how do I do a multiple group factor analysis using software X? But this isn't it. This, Mm -hmm. to me, is about the science, the ideas, the application, the inference And then on another day, you go to the software package and figure out how to do it with your own data. Yes. Good. Was that, that was actually a separate point. Yeah, kind of. Okay. Is that supposed to count as yours then? Yeah, I guess. Wow. I'm really driving this bus today. I'm kind of glad you didn't read my email. This is going much better Uh than had you. Yeah. Yeah. Email is in air quotes. (laughs) Um, You know, when you mention these things, my brain just wanders, just like you mentioned childhood literature, my brain wandered when you mentioned planes, trains, and automobiles. Now I keep thinking of all my favorite scenes and quotes from planes, trains, and automobiles. (laughs) There's one that our kids say now. All the time. So, you know, we introduce our kids to these movies that we consider to be classics. There's one scene when they're driving down the road and people are screaming at them, you're going the wrong way. Wait, wait, wait. Can can I give it back? Please, please. They don't know where we're going. (laughs) How do they know we're going the wrong way? You're going the wrong way. He said we're going the wrong way. Oh, he's drunk. How would he know where we're going? Yeah, how would he know? Yeah. When they're driving on the wrong side of the interstate. They don't Uh even know where we're going. (laughs) Yeah, they know. (laughs) For those of you who haven't seen the movie, go go see the movie. One of my proudest parenting moments is now my girls when my wife will say, why are you doing that? And they'll look up and in a dead serious face say, we're on a mission from God. Would it make you feel any better if you knew that what we're asking Matthew to do is a holy thing? You see, we're on a mission from God. God. (laughs) That's right. 106 miles to Chicago. (laughs) Got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark and we're wearing sunglasses. (laughs) Hit it. 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. Lord knows where we are. Do you want to hack something up? Yes, I would. Let me think of it first. (laughs) Uh, Okay, I can do something. You ready? I like a paper that ends with providing resources for people so they can go out and learn more about these kinds of things. So it might be the case that there are more primary articles on this. There might be other didactic resources in other fields. There might be some good textbooks for those people who want to learn more. Or it might be the case that you have a paper that introduces people to growth modeling. We'll say it's within a structural modeling framework. 
and you have primarily restricted your treatment to linear models just to introduce people to it. But you can say there are also nonlinear models, and here are resources for those. There are change score models or latent difference score models. Here are places to go learn about those. So it's nice when you provide this foundation, but you also give people a good launch pad so they can go out and forage around for their own. So I think part of good teaching is providing resources for people then to go learn stuff on their own. I like that a lot. It's the old teach someone to fish, give them a fish kind of thing. There's something from Sunday school in there I probably should have remembered. <laughs> so you don't remember that, but you can remember Blues Brothers <laughs> verbatim. <laughs> Excellent. We got to go see the penguin. What are we doing here? You promised you'd visit the penguin the day you got out. Yeah? So I lied to him. You can't lie to a nun. We got to go in and visit the penguin. No way. <laughs> I really like your point because it's a what next? Where do you go next? Because mm -hmm. it's almost mm -hmm. like a little teaser of it's like, come here, I want to show you something kind of thing. The panel van <laughs> aspect to it intellectually. But <laughs> really, to, well, okay. You, Can we you go back there? to the circus tent maybe? <laughs> yeah, this time difference is killing me, dude. It's just killing me. You want to give a little taste, a little show, but then, all right, here are four things that you can do Mm -hmm. is don't leave them hanging because there's right. very little you can truly do in a couple of dozen pages of double space text. What you want to do is proselytize about your method and yeah. then give the reader somewhere to go next. I'm not even going to subway jump on a prior one of yours. I'm just going to unabashedly steal it because <laughs> you hit uh -huh. the point, but you didn't drill into it. And okay. that is unambiguously embrace the limitations of mm -hmm. whatever methodology you're demonstrating. And you alluded to this, but yeah. I think this is a really important one because we all have the same N by P data set. And there are different ways that we can parameterize a model to try to recover the underlying moment structure that we believe to exist and compare that to the moment structure that we observed in the data. And all of these different approaches are different ways of accomplishing that. And for every strength a new method has, there is an associated limitation. And it doesn't have to be an Achilles heel. It's not like, oh, there's this dark secret that latent transition analysis has. It's just remember the adage is you got to pay the reaper. You don't get mm -hmm. something for free. And if we are able to parameterize a model in a way that gives us some insight that some more traditional method doesn't, are we then invoking some new assumptions? Or mm -hmm. does that introduce some instability? Maybe there are sensitivity to start values. Maybe there are more local minima. If we are moving toward a more comprehensive measurement model, we have more parameters. We're making more assumptions about residual variances. It's just you don't want to be a used car salesman and say an 80-year-old woman drove this one Sunday a week just mm -hmm. to get you off the lot. Let the user go in eyes wide open and say, all right, here are all these really exciting things. I need to keep my head up about this other stuff and then use that more profitably in my own work. 
Yeah, I agree. And I think sometimes people confuse writing one of these papers with having to sell it to somebody. And it's not. The idea is that you are teaching somebody about the scope of this, and the scope of it includes what it can't do. So you don't have to be so, you know, use the term proselytizing. You don't have to be so evangelical about this that you don't see all of this method's blind spots. Make them explicit because you want to equip the reader going out there to be able to use it and to be able to be a principled user of this method. So I I appreciate you emphasizing what I said earlier. <laughs> you know, I've um, not given any of my own points yet. And so I really appreciate it. It's very efficient. From no, my, but your my side. knowledge of child literature and juvenile <laughs> movies. <laughs> Poor old Yeller. Oh, is man. Is extensive. Um, but I, I want to continue on that theme just to spare you from having to make something up or to give you something to make something up about. I like excitement in the writing of these papers. We talked at the very beginning about this being reminiscent of really good teaching, just good teaching in a different form. And there can be these kinds of papers that are really deadly dull. I mean, technically, they can be fine and a reader doesn't need to be all hyped up by the... But I, I really want someone to to show their enthusiasm, to to show all the cool things that this can do and to understand the limitations. You know that you have read papers that have been just so flat in their affect versus things that have really popped a bit more. And I'm, I'm not trying to be false about it, but... I really want someone to convey that this is exciting to them. And you mentioned very early on in our conversation about sometimes these papers can have a bit more of a colloquial style, use a bit more relatable language. To me, that's absolutely part of motivating the use of these things. Be conversational. You know, this is kind of cool what it can do. And let me show you what it can do. And, and let's understand where it's where the edges are so we won't hurt ourselves. I really want to have an upbeat, positive, motivating tone when I read one of these. I think that's the way you sell it. And it's that hook again. They're not going to be excited about it if you're not going to be excited about it. Right. So <laughs> you and I both have kids and how many times have we said, it is so cool, we get to go to the dentist, is you're going to be able to get, they give you this bag at the end that's just full of stuff, you know, and it's just like we lie to our children on a regular uh -huh. basis. And it's not the same as going to the dentist, but if you're not excited about it, why is anybody else going to be excited about it? I love headgear. It's, it's the best. <laughs> It's amazing. Do you have a point? <laughs> <laughs> We've been going an hour. Have I had a point yet? No, sir, you have not. I am echoing yours. And mm -hmm. that enthusiasm, I think, if we're doing this right, and if Camp is working in some general way for some subset of people, the enthusiasm should come somewhat naturally because you're enthusiastic enough to write a pedagogical paper. Yeah. Right. Is I mean, I think that's just a go with the flow is convey your own excitement about it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that will entice the readers to be excited as well. One thing that I like to do when I'm writing, whether it's book chapters, didactic book chapters, or these kinds of pieces, I really want to have someone from the designated audience serve as a pre-submission <laughs> mm. pre reader of it. So I will often run drafts by students, and they might not be students in our area because students in our area might view things with more technical eyes. Now, those aren't bad eyes to have on it. For example, 
I did a piece a few years ago with a wonderful guy, Rob Schoonen, and it was about structural modeling for language researchers, like second language acquisition kinds of researchers and the possibilities of doing that. What I wanted to do is have some students from that area take a look at drafts of it to see if they could follow it, if it made sense, where they were having problems. So I, I like to have it have it read, have it proofed by them. So I know I'm meeting the mark. And we've talked on prior episodes when I work with colleagues and with students, there are two clusters of reviews that I ask for. There's a DOB review and an RTS review. And mm -hmm. the DOB is the distribution of blame, which mm -hmm. is I did this and you're going to check off on it because if there's an error, you checked off on it. So I do that a fair <laughs> I'm amount. taking with you down my, with me. You're coming uh -huh. down with me is, uh -huh. is it's a DOB. And then the RTS is ripped to mm -hmm. which is take it out back, beat it with a shovel, bring it back in yeah. and let me see what I agree with, what I don't agree with. If there's a footnote that I can put in. I agree, is getting it into the hands of the people who are going to use it because the deeper you are in this field, you lose sight of that a little bit. What does a new grad student who has had ANOVA and regression and they want to move to a basic growth model, you don't have that perspective anymore, right? Mm -hmm. You look at the equations and you say, well, it's right there. Yeah. Right? right. Because you spent 10 years figuring it out that it's right there. But I like that a lot. The theme of the RTS review has sort of been beat the reviewer to the critique. And this is sort of that, but I actually think about it more from the perspective of the anticipated audience than just the reviewers. You know, is this good teaching? Tell me if you're able to learn from this. That's really what I want to know. Where do I need to shore this up? Where am I beating a dead horse? In some ways, those are different eyes that you're asking someone for. You're asking them to put their learner eyes on and not so much necessarily about technical places. It comes to a similar thing. Well, I would then have a subdomain of LRTS, which is learner rip to <laughs> review, because that's what I was thinking mm -hmm. is somebody who mm -hmm. you have their confidence where they can say, look, you made point three in four different ways. You only need it once. And I have no idea how to get from point three to point four. My big problem for myself when I write things like this is I do get repetitive. And the number of times I will say, in other words, or that is, right? I have mm -hmm. rubber stamps of in other <laughs> words, or that is, or namely, or mm -hmm. more specifically, and then it's just a way of restating exactly what I said before, and I have to be very cognizant of that. But getting test reads, it's like a test recipe, right? You test your recipes before putting them out. I think that's a great idea. One that I would have is it doesn't apply to all, but try to be creative in how you do this. They don't all have to be a sequential step one, step two, step three. There's not a lot of bandwidth on different kind of frames that you can do it. But for example, we wrote one that we cast out in terms of frequently asked questions. So it was like yeah. an FAQ about growth modeling. And mm -hmm. that was kind of nice because each frequently asked question was a little modular standalone blurb. So we would yeah. say, what is the difference between a multi-level growth model and a structural equation growth model? So we'd put the question and then mm -hmm. we'd spend a paragraph 
answering it and then give one or two citations for further reading Mm -hmm. on that question. You could do it as a dialogue between two people, right? The screw tape letters. Did you ever read C.S. Lewis, the the screw tape letters? Do you want to just ruin the ending for me now? (laughs) (laughs) It's a Uh a wonderful book, but screw tape is uh, a minion of Satan who is not doing his job very well. And Mm -hmm. so it's a series of letters But just an example is you could do some kind of conversation between two people. I mean, do something, Mm -hmm. something that's just different. I like anything that's just different, that's Mm -hmm. novel. And so, so be creative about it. There's not a lot of leeway in what you can do here, but I just, as each year goes by, I more and more prize creativity. As long as the person doing it is not doing it because they are bored, Right. Sometimes people indulge Ooh, themselves that's in different. My problem. That's, <laughs> that's the Dude. last ten years of my life. What the hell do you call this podcast? Uh huh. Oh, edit that out. <laughs> um, you have to be cautious about being overly indulgent. Just you know, if it's a different format because you're tired of the same old crap. I think the proof is in the pudding, and that is that if you do something in a creative format, and I'm all for creative formats, and I actually like very much the idea of a dialogue between two people. That's a really cute format. Again, put it in the hands of a reader and ask, is this meeting the objectives? So just in the end, always keep the eyes on who the audience will be and whether or not they can learn from it. All right. Where are you? You got something? Uh, give me a sec. One of the things that we've been talking about a lot is this idea of a standalone paper or a standalone piece, but it's probably worth mentioning that even in papers that are more applied, more empirical, there's an opportunity to use that as a vehicle to teach people about the methods or to elaborate on those a little bit. So even if though you're addressing a primary substantive question, you can expand uh, on the methods a little bit more and, and help educate people. And that might even make that an outstanding piece for other people to refer to, even though it wasn't solely about the method itself. I love that. And I try to do that in some of my work to varying degrees. Sometimes I'll try to sneak it in. So as you go through the results, maybe you're just a little bit more pedantic, not pedantic in a pejorative way, but that just step by step is first we did this, then we did that. It goes to my Agatha Christie kind of writing style is Mm -hmm. then I refreshed my (laughs) coffee and thought further about the aberrant observation. (laughs) The other one is you can embrace it and say, There are two goals that we seek to achieve here. The primary Mm -hmm. goal is to test these three hypotheses that were derived from theory. Our secondary goal is to detail a novel method that we're using in hopes that this may be applicable in other similar kinds of applications. That's very nice. To make it part of the unique contribution of the paper, and then an editor doesn't say you need to cut out three pages because your results section is too long. I think, Greg, this raises a broader issue, which is this is all part of our bigger goal that we Mm -hmm. have here. We've established early on that we are extraordinarily fortunate in having a job that more or less is trying to develop new knowledge 
and telling people about it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times the sole focus is on the development of the novel ideas and knowledge and less on the communication and dissemination Mm -hmm. of that. But I don't know in your neck of the woods, but on my side of the street, I have found an increasing appreciation when it comes to promotion kinds of settings for these types of papers. 20 years ago, when I would write one of these, I'd have a more senior person say, this is great. It's a good service to the field, right? It's like a check box is right. You did a chapter, you did a symposium, you did a pedagogical paper, you know, it's kind of a checklist, but saying you really need to focus more on these peer reviewed empirical papers. And clearly that remains the coin of the realm, but at least in personnel committee meetings that I've been part of. I think that notion of dissemination is becoming increasingly viewed as an important part of what we do and what our ethical obligation is to the field in developing novel findings and insights and understanding while having an obligation of communicating that to a broader audience of consumers. I couldn't agree more. I think the tides have changed. I don't think the tides have gone all the way over to this is all you have to do. You know, what's the point of having new methods if you're not going to communicate about them, if people have to go out there and unearth them themselves? I have sat on every level of promotion and tenure committee within our own institution. And certainly I've written dozens of evaluations for people at other institutions. And you really do see the value of translational components being ramped up. You see discussion about what it means to be able to get academia out in the hands of not just other researchers, but people who are out there in practice. And, you know, me being over on the other side of the street in education, that is extremely important in education that it doesn't just languish in the halls of academia, even among education researchers, but ultimately in our world, it it affects how people do things in practice. Now, what that might mean is it affects how people do things in practice by informing the types of studies that are done to determine what is most efficacious in practice. I think it's not too strong to say that it's incumbent upon us not just to create these new methods that we're doing, but to try to help get them in the hands of the people who need them most. So I completely agree with you that the tide is really changing to embrace this and emphasize it, and not just in the form of the types of pieces that we're talking about today, but in other ways as well, by holding workshops, by, you know, even even podcasts, for example. If there are other means of disseminating and translating things so that they get out to a wider audience, those are the things that are being wrestled with in academia, how to think about those. I wrote a paper a while ago. I don't know. It's been probably 15 years now, but it was maybe the most boring paper I've ever written. And it was on the asymptotic sampling distribution of a non-centrality parameter under model misspecification to evaluate population drift. You just want to drill a hole in your head. But it was a unique and novel finding that had important implications for using chi-square difference tests for Mm -hmm. misspecified models. It has Mm -hmm. something like 150 citations, 140 citations. Mm -hmm. Chris Preacher, Dan Bauer, and I wrote a paper to support Chris's online calculators for probing interactions. And so Mm -hmm. Chris took the lead on it, and it's Preacher, I think, Curran, and Bauer. Mm -hmm. And it got lukewarm reviews 
where it went. We revised. It got lukewarm response. We wrote a, come on, guys, this is a helpful. It was very pedagogical. It was, here are the calculators. Here's how you enter them. Here's an example. You know, very much like we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like almost against their better judgment, they accepted the paper. Like, they were almost, like, angry about accepting mm-hmm. the paper. <laughs> My RMSEA paper had, whatever, 150 citations, and this one has 4,200. <laughs> There are two points here is one is we have an obligation to do that, but two is I think the field also is respecting that more and these are important parts of a broader portfolio. If you're a more junior person and you're preparing for promotion and tenure, that these are important parts to have. You can't have every paper you've written be like this, but these Mm -hmm. are a really nice way of rounding out the story that you tell of how you do novel and unique work and disseminate this to a broader audience of researchers. And we hope that people who are out there in our audience who are participating in QuantaCamp, we hope that this is one of the outlets that people have, that one of the goals that they have for participating in QuantaCamp, that you have perhaps some new method that you're interested in or a method that you're familiar with that you want to bring to your particular group. And I hope that the points that we've made along the way here have helped you to think about how to craft such a paper. And it makes me wonder, where are we going next? I laid out a detailed outline in that email that I sent you. (laughs) Paraphrasing my brother, I was going to outline next week, but I didn't. (laughs) I didn't. (laughs) I think we will broaden the lens to discuss the arc of the general implications (laughs) of the underlying synergistic motivation that is moving us forward to claim novel and uncharted territory in the intellectual domain. Oh my God, the random crap generator. That was so, <laughs> that's impressive. Okay, well, I look forward to doing whatever that is uh, with you and having folks join us next time. Any, any parting shots that you got, my friend? I got to go massage my butt again. <laughs> okay, it always comes back to that. Yeah, it's uh, not a right. sleep. <laughs> wow. On that note, thanks everybody for being with us as usual, and we look forward to having you join Quanta Camp next time. Take care, everybody.